Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, begins a new series on the letters to the churches in Revelation. If you want to watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can find all of that on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. Jesus has overcome this world, and because of that, we have become overcomers. So how well are you doing on that? Are you overcoming? Is your life overcoming, or is it underwhelming? Do you feel overwhelmed and overcome? We start a new series today, and it's called, Can You Hear Me? The series is subtitled, Letters from God. Take out your message guide. These messages will focus on Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation that are found in chapters 2 and 3. I know that some of you heard that I was going to deal with Revelation and you were excited to know who the ten-headed dragon was. But I am not going there. I'm only dealing with the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. So I'll let you speculate on the ten-headed dragon, although I saw one in Malden recently. (laughs) The theme verse at the top of the message guides, and this is the theme verse for the entire series, not just today's message from Revelation 2-7. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. This verse is actually found in in the message to each and every one of the churches. So open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 1. In this Bible available at Brookwood, it is on page 989. Revelation 1, beginning at verse 1. This is a revelation. Now the word revelation comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis. And in the New Testament, everywhere it appears in the New Testament, it refers to divine disclosure of God's will. So it's something that was hidden, something that was unknown, that is revealed by God, which God gave to him. Uh, this is, it's from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. And remember, Jesus said that he only does what he sees the Father do. He only says what the Father says for him to say. So it comes from Jesus, but ultimately from the Father, which God gave to him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. And then an unusual verse, he sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John. This is the only book in the Bible where it says that the revelation was actually given by an angel to the author. Who inspired the other writers? Holy Spirit did, typically. Hebrews infers that an angel gave the law to Moses, but that seems to be more about Jewish tradition than it does an inspired statement. And John faithfully reported 
everything he saw. And this is the report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then there's another interesting verse at verse 3. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. And again, this is the only book in the Bible that it says that there's a particular blessing for reading it and for hearing and obeying it. So if you've never read Revelation, spend some time reading beyond what I cover. Now, Jesus was speaking to these churches, and he is speaking through them to us. He was telling them about coming destruction that would occur during Passover in the year, what? 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., a Roman general, you know his name? Titus destroyed the city of Jerusalem and demolished the temple. It essentially ended the sacrificial system. And so you see a movement um, even dramatically from old covenant to new covenant because the temple is no more. In that destruction... This Roman general slaughtered, according to a historian, Josephus, 1.1 million people. See, the people had gathered. Jerusalem wasn't that large, but all the people gathered for Passover. And then the Roman soldiers would not let them leave the city. And they put over a million to death, and they enslaved 97,000. And you see references to this in Matthew 24. You say, well, are you telling me that all of Revelation is about 70 A.D. that already happened? No, what most scholars believe is that it did describe something that happened historically. But then through that description, it's also describing the ultimate end and the return of Christ. Verse 9, skip over there. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. So the author is, it says it there, John. This John is the disciple and the apostle of Jesus. Well, what's the difference? Well, a disciple's a learner. An apostle is a speaker. The apostle carried the message that he had learned as a disciple, and now he explains it and instructs people in the gospel. The date, now this date of Revelation is debatable. The two most common dates are A.D. 68 or A.D. uh, 96. A.D. 68 or A.D. 96. You say, well, that's almost 30 years. Yes. So it was written either shortly after the reign of Emperor Nero or at the close of the reign of Emperor Domitian. What difference does it make? Well, it determines whether it's a prediction of 70 A.D. 
or it's a description looking back. Where was it written? It was written on a Greek island in the Aegean Sea off the western coast of what's today Turkey. Now the letters were written and they were sent during a time of great persecution. You say, well, then why are they relevant to us? We're not under persecution. Well, pay attention. We're not today being arrested for our faith. But in many settings, we are being criticized, even attacked for our faith. Now, if you have nothing but nice things to say, everyone leaves you alone. But if you take a biblical position on moral issues, you will suddenly find some persecution. So, now I'm, you know, something less than 100 years old. So I have seen a dramatic shift in the moral climate of our country. Have you? Turn on television now and turn back 25 years, completely different. And the problem is, like the frog in the kettle, we've just gotten so exposed to this ever-rottening culture, ever more crass, ever more crude, ever more sexual, so that we hardly notice it. But we live in a culture that has dramatically changed. And in certain segments, you see outright attack. Not so much the South, at least at this stage. But Jesus, through John, exposed the errors and the weaknesses in these seven congregations in what was referred to then as Asia Minor. It was in a Roman province. Today it's western Kentucky, uh, Turkey. Not Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> that's right <laughs> where they make all that bourbon I think but, um, but Jesus was also encouraging authentic faith in churches and individuals and so these seven letters apply to us wherever they apply to us both as a church and as individuals. The message that we look at today was written to the church in Ephesus. And so we move to chapter 2 of Revelation. Now let me point out before I move forward. We put a handout in your message guide. On one side is a list of verses that just tells us, reassures us that God still speaks. And if you are struggling with that. Don't, don't be embarrassed, but study through these scriptures. Pray through them. Ask, does God still speak? You say, well, you've got a page full, but is that all there is? Well, I didn't put down any verses. I didn't list any verses that record a dialogue between God and a person. 
Not God in Abraham, not God in Moses, not God in David, not God in Paul, not an angel in Mary, an angel in Zechariah. And there are many, many of those conversations in the scripture. But just because of space, I just gave you more the broader statements that assure us God is still speaking. In Acts, there's many times that God spoke particular, specific direction to the church, to Paul, to Peter, to the gathered disciples. And so we want to consider whether God still speaks. And we want to learn how to hear. Will you walk with me in this? Uh, I'll come back to this at the end, but I understand that what I'm saying can be intimidating to us. You may be embarrassed to say, I've never heard God, but I'll tell you this. It was only a few years ago that I really believed God would speak directly to me. Now, I believed he spoke through the Bible, and I believed the Bible was inspired and applicable to me. But I'm not talking about just the Scripture. He speaks through the Scripture. He also speaks personally and individually. Now, he'll say nothing that violates what's already revealed in the Scripture. But every relationship requires communication. And God will communicate with you. But sometimes we have to learn to hear. We have to learn to hear. The letter begins today with a greeting. Chapter 2, verse 1. Write this letter to the angel. Now, this isn't speaking about a, a divine being. This is speaking about a messenger. Because that's what the word angel actually means, messenger. And in this instance, it means the, the leader, the pastor or the elder of this individual church. So write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus or in Ephesus. Ephesus was a large harbor city. Now, it was actually three miles from the coast. And so there was a, a, a road that you had to travel. Today, because of the silt, uh, the ruined city of Ephesus sits six miles from the coast. But at that time, it was considered a large harbor city, population from a quarter to a half million people, served as the center of trade. It was also the headquarters of the Roman government for that region. It was the location of a magnificent temple of worship for the fertility goddess whose Greek name was, what? Don't y'all study in the fourth grade? Didn't everybody learn mythology and all that in the fourth grade? Maybe it's sixth grade. I don't know. Y'all tell me. You've got Artemis. Somebody back there said it, right? Well, since you're so smart, what was her Roman name? Oh, <laughs> yes, Diana, or as the Latins say, Diana. And that temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Magnificent. Now, the gospel was introduced in Ephesus by Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, Acts 18, who were later assisted by Apollos. 
followed by reinforcement and teaching by, through Paul's return during his second and his third missionary journey. So this church in Ephesus is now 40 years old at this writing. Timothy served as one of the first, perhaps the first pastor. Later, John was serving there as pastor when he was arrested and exiled to Patmos. Tradition says that a very important person was living in Ephesus with John. Who do you think it is? Who said that? That's good. Mary, because on the cross, Jesus said, Behold your son, behold your mother, to John. Revelation 2, chapter 1, the latter part of, of, chapter, of verse 1. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars represent the leaders of these churches who are held by the hand and led and directed by God. The one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. And the gold lampstands represent the seven churches which Jesus examines. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that the stars represent the leaders of the churches, the lampstands represent the churches, and the commonality between stars and lampstands is that both are supposed to, they're both supposed to shine. They're both supposed to shed light. The next part of this passage is affirmation. Verse 2. I know all the things you do. See, Jesus had complete knowledge of all these churches were doing. The good and the bad. The ministry and the mistakes. The works and the weaknesses. Does he know everything that we're doing and failing to do? Does he know everything you are doing and failing to do? Well, let me ask a question. Let's assume Jesus showed up in the flesh, moved into your house, stayed a week, and went to work with you every day. Would your behavior or the words you use change at all? Answer me. If you say yes, it means you don't understand that he is that present with you. You have lost some of your sense of the omnipresence of Jesus. Because he is that present with you. He is at work with you. He is at home with you. Continue in verse 2. I have seen your hard work. He's talking about physical, mental, emotional efforts to further the cause of Christ. And your patient endurance, which is perseverance through difficult circumstances or harsh treatment. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. These people obeyed God's standards of moral behavior. And they likely practice church discipline. Here's where we're slipping. 
we, we want to embrace some aspects of God, but not his moral standards. I'll come back to this. Continue in verse 2. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. And you have discovered they're liars. In other words, they knew, they knew what they believed. They knew what were the right beliefs. So they recognized and they rejected false teachers. Can you discern when what you're being told or taught isn't biblically correct? And I've, I've invited you and said you really should always examine everything I say in case I misstate something. But see, our church culture is full of a lot of teaching today that sounds good to the ears, but is not biblically sound. God wants you completely healthy always. God wants you wealthy as well. That's not scripturally correct. God gives prosperity when we obey and follow. Not always financial prosperity. We all die sometime. God does heal. I firmly believe he miraculously heals. But he's not under an obligation to heal if we pray the right way. So can you tell when what you're hearing isn't? correct because we need to be able to say now that you know what you're saying that's not biblically supported it's not biblically correct otherwise we're just tossed around we don't know what to believe verse 3 you have patiently suffered for me without quitting for 40 years, these Ephesians had served diligently. They had endured trials. They had refused to tolerate evil. They had rejected false teaching. He adds this affirmation. Jump down to verse 6. This is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Now, the Nicolaitans can't be positively identified historically. Some, some writers think that they were the followers of Nicholas, who was one of the first deacons. But there's some consensus about what they believed. And the consensus was that this group stressed the graceful forgiveness of God, but they improperly emphasized Christian liberty to the point that immorality was not only tolerated, it was almost encouraged as freedom. But the Ephesians rejected this teaching. Do we reject this teaching? You see, our culture is only too willing to accept an invitation into heaven. But not at the cost of the immorality I want to be involved in. You might be surprised at this. Premarital sex is still off limits. Homosexual practice is not accepted by God. Well, what are we, we're supposed to, you know, really raise Cain about this and, and argue with people? No, we're supposed to humbly love people. 
But, but we don't love them if we don't tell them the truth. So we have to say that that's not permitted by God. The most, we, somehow we've come to think that love always says yes, but sometimes the most loving thing you can say is no, that isn't right. And God hasn't changed. It's, it's interesting to me how now in this political season, a lot of people are talking about faith, their faith, their faith, their faith. And then they're espousing abortion, homosexual marriage, a lot of the very things that the scripture says are out of bounds. You, you can't have it both ways. And what happens is if you remove God from the throne, you're always going to have a God. But who does God become? Who, who, who becomes God? You do. So if I'm determining what's right, what's wrong, I'm calling balls and strikes, I'm determining what's moral, what's immoral, I'm God and he's not. But can I offer salvation? To myself. So we have to recognize this kind of teaching. We have to avoid becoming like these Nicolaitans where we minimize, overlook, ignore our sins because we expect, even assume, take for granted the grace of God. We all know this phrase, hate the sin and love the sinner, right? And we are certainly supposed to do that. But we've forgotten the first part. And we have to do both. We have to do both. The next portion of this letter is a challenge. Verse 4. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love each other. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Some translations say you have lost your first love. In other words, love has waned. And the word wane means diminished or declined. See, this church, Ephesus, maintained right beliefs. We call that doctrinal orthodoxy. They continued in sacrificial service. But their behaviors had become motivated by, yes, a good desire to do right things, but no longer connected with the right reason, which was love. These good things, these gospel efforts, had become mere human good works. Because they were not inspired anymore or encouraged by love for Jesus or for other people. And this was a church that was really founded. If you read the beginning of, of the book of Ephesians, they, they were founded on love for God and love for each other. Paul commented on that. But 40 years later, their love had declined into, into routine. You know, you, you wonder why. What happened? Had those earliest converts who, who were Jews and became believers or were Gentiles and became Christians. Had those people died off and the ones that followed them, 
understood Christianity but didn't have the passion? What about us? Do we have the passion or we, do we just have what we receive from our parents? Verse 5. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me, which means repent. And do the works that you did at first. See, this church needed to remember and reflect on what it's like, what it felt like to be in love with Jesus. And what it feels like to serve other people because of love. Not because it's the right thing to do. You'll be a lot more sacrificial based on love than you will just trying to do something to be a good citizen. Love has a long patience, doesn't it? Good works wear out very fast. When we love, that means we're invested in the best for this person. When we serve just to kind of do some good things, when they don't respond like we want to, we're out of there. You know, our church motto, what's our church motto? Love God, love people. Is that true of me? Is that true of you? If, if Jesus did follow you around, would he say at the end of the week, I saw you love God, I watched you love people. These Ephesians were called to repent from their complacency toward God, from their indifference toward others. But now they, they still looked good on the outside. They were still showing up to church. But it was no longer because they really loved God. You know what? If you grew up like I did, my mother, my mother was just legitimate Christian. And you know what? Even when I was in college, nobody would ever doubt I was a Christian. Because I knew more than most of them did about Bible. I understood the shtick, you know. But I had no love for God. And if you watched me 24 hours a day and if you could see my thoughts and watch my actions, you'd immediately see that guy is not in love with Christ. But I knew how to act. I knew what to say. I knew the verses. I'd been to the Bible studies. And so these people still look good on the outside. But it's dead inside. They needed to return as a church to, to, to that first love that they experienced. Do you remember that day? Sometimes people say, I don't know if I'm saved or not. How do I know if I'm saved? It's not because you can recite verses. I could recite verses for 20 years before I was born again. Which, doesn't, which is still good to learn verses, to help train. But I tell them, do you love God? Do you love people? Do you love his word? Love will control your life. You know that? 
Love will always change your life. If you're in a loving relationship with someone, it alters who you are. Doesn't it? It causes you to want to please, to not hurt, to serve, to accommodate, to encourage, to build up. Love does. But when love's not there, you're only going to go so far until it becomes not convenient anymore. Remember those days. Remember that first love. That first love should have become the love for today that's intensified and you ought to be more in love today than you were in the very beginning. And that day was shocking to you, but it's because you had no love for God before that and no love from God. The love from God is so comprehensive that it changes us so that we must become loving. Y'all get what I'm saying here? Love for God won't let you indulge in sin. He matters to you. This passion or this lack thereof will always be evident in our lives. And in the way we serve, in our worship, in our evangelism, are we inviting somebody to church? Are we trying to share a word of faith? Because we love this person, we love Christ, we don't want someone we care about to miss out on knowing him. Do you feel that? See what I'm saying? If you know someone lost right now and you have no compulsion to to try to reach them, that light's dimmed. Our devotion to prayer, or do you go, oh gosh, I don't want to pray. Or do you say, I'm going to talk to God a while. You know what I'm talking about here? You think, okay, I get to talk to God a while. I'm going to read my Bible and excited that there may be something in here that God speaks to me personally today. Our desire to be in his presence, our comfort in his presence, to know his word so we know him. Our enthusiasm to serve and to meet the needs of others, the physical needs and the spiritual needs. Just because we've been loved by God so we're loving of others. Now, this letter includes a stern warning, which we've called consequences. Down at verse 5. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. Again, that was symbolic of the church, remember. From its place among the churches. See, Christ has warned these Ephesians... That they need to recover their passion. They need to to experience and then display their love as the motivation for ministry. Or their light would be extinguished. Are you going through the motions? 
Jesus would come not, not as his second coming. He would come back to judge this church. Because he has this high expectations on his people and on his churches. And this passage declares that he will end the existence of a church that's not serving with love. You say, well, what does that look like? I think we see it in our country. Lots of church buildings standing and many very beautiful. And services held consistently but with not any light pouring out from them. They're still going through the motions. They may not even know that the Spirit's gone. Can you tell when the Spirit's left? But you can still do church without the Spirit. But there's no light in you and there's no light in the building. Ephesus was a glorious city and a wonderful church. Today, the city's in ruins and there's no light shining there at all. Today, Turkey's Muslim. There's probably about 3,000 Christians in the whole country today. But there's hope. There's hope. The grace and the mercy of God offers repentance and promises restoration if we return to him. But you have to step back into that love relationship. Ask God, do I need to repent? Is there some sin in my life I'm tolerating? Because see, I can't be close to God clinging sin to myself. Now we can say we are, but we can't be. We can't be living in something that costs the life of God's son. Can't be living there. So it's essential to our faith that we turn back to loving Jesus and others as we did at first. Or the light will go out. The letter closes with rewards. Verse 7. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit. I mean, do you hear the Spirit speaking? Even right now. I've told you, it doesn't matter what Perry preaches. What matters is what the Spirit whispers in your ear. What's the Spirit saying? Listen to the Spirit and understand what He's saying to the churches and to each of us individually. So we have a responsibility to heed God's voice that's in the Scripture, as revealed in the Scripture, and also what He says directly. There'll never be an inconsistency between what's revealed in the Scripture and what He says directly. But God will speak to us directly. And then he closes with this. To everyone who is victorious. Some translations say overcomers as Beth sang earlier. And that refers to all Christians. I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. 
The tree of life appears where in the Bible first? Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve fall into sin, they're barred from the garden for the reason of protecting them from the tree. Well, why would God protect them from that tree? Because had they eaten of the tree, they would have lived eternally in a fallen state. So death came so they, they could be restored and then in heaven made whole again. There's also a tree of life in heaven. We eat of it again and we do live eternally. The Ephesian church warns us that right beliefs and outward service, outward service is good, but it can't make up for a cold heart. A heart that's not been warmed by the love of God and has no love for God and others. Is your love for Jesus waning or warming? Now let me ask you as I close to walk with me in this soul training. On the back of your message guide is today's assignment. And what we're going to do is the way I've outlined each of these letters from the letter from God insert. Each week we're going to do just one of those. And so I urge you to get some kind of notebook. This is just a moleskin. In fact, it's the moleskin I bought when we were first praying about should we begin giving this, you know, sizable contribution to the children in India. And I knew that if we did, it would, it would be disastrous on the church financially unless God was in it. And I didn't know how to hear God speak. And so we, we gathered as a leadership team and we found a man who did these, you know, kind of weekend conferences to teach people how to listen. And we went and asked God, what do you want from us? But we really just learned we can hear from God. And folks, I was really anxious. I thought this guy was going to send us out in the woods for three hours, you know, and, and try to hear. And I was really afraid that I couldn't hear. Jerry Fry was so intimidated, he tried to find an excuse not even to go. But, but we went, and we learned that God does speak, and we can hear. If you belong to God, I will promise you, he wants to communicate with you. Because every relationship is based on communication. So if you'll do these... Just the first part, take some kind of a notebook, write down the question, pray it to God, and then immediately write down how he responds. If you don't write it down, you're going to forget it or doubt it ever happened. And begin to take these steps. I know it's threatening. How many of you will do it with me? Let me see. Let's take some steps, okay? Let's try. Let's be sure that we are people and we're a church who can hear God. So our light will never be snuffed out. Counselors will be here to pray with you, to talk with you, to anoint you with oil. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to be a people who seek after you. And God, enable us to hear when you speak. We want to know you. We want to love you. 
and we want to learn how to love others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for coming. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 in order to get in contact with our Connections team. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.